Now, if this uh, girl, Marion Crane, were here, you wouldn't be hiding her, would you? No. Not in if she paid you well? No. <laughs> Let's just say for the, uh, just for the sake of argument, that she wanted you to uh, gallantly protect her. You'd know that you were being used, that uh, you wouldn't be made a fool of, would you? But I'm not a fool. Well, I'm... And I'm not capable of being fooled, not, not even by a woman. Well, this is not a slur on your manhood, I'm uh, sorry. Let's put it this way. She might have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. You can read all of my written work there at my website, Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. Net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcasts that I do, very similar to this one, except a little bit later in years, specifically covering films of the 1990s, as well as beyond that, a little more recent movies as well. It's called To the 90s and Beyond. You can find the link at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be starting a new series of films based on a particular franchise. I think there's about five films I'm going to be doing here. The original work, which was not done in the 1980s, as well as two sequels from the 80s and one that came out in 1990, and a made-for-television full-length spin-off of a sort that was meant as a pilot for a new series. But I'll get into that in later episodes. Today I'm going to start off with one of the most well-known films, I guess in movie history, really. One of the most influential films on a lot of the movies that I cover here, especially the slashers of the 1980s. And I'm talking specifically about a film that came out in 1960. And of course, once you know that, you know the film I'm going to be talking about if you have any idea about film at all. 1960s Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece called Psycho. Now, Psycho, depending on uh, when it was released, it was sometimes rated PG. In real releases after 1985 or so, it was released in a PG-13 format. And today, somehow, it carries an R rating at least according to the Blu-ray I have. It does have a kind of brief nudity, or at least suggested, and uh, the subject matter is, is quite uh, potent still today. The runtime is an hour and 49 minutes. The main stars are Anthony Perkins, Janet Lee, Vera Miles, John Gavin, Martin Balsam, and John McIntyre, a few other people that you'll see in the film. Alfred Hitchcock makes his, uh, his usual cameo as well, but he is the director. And the screenplay is credited to Joseph Stefano, and it's based on the book by Robert Block. Now, getting into Psycho, let's talk about the making of that book, but actually a little bit before that, into what inspired the book, which was back in 1957, there was this hermit who lived out in farm country named Ed Gein. And Gein was arrested on suspicion of murder during that period. Searches from police of Gein's Wisconsin farmhouse, they revealed bodies of several missing women. They were mutilated, decapitated, their organs preserved in various ways around the farm. Gein had taken to donning the skinned faces of these women, other body parts that he skinned as well, putting them over his body as he traipsed around his isolated property. The victims were, generally speaking, older women. They were not dissimilar in appearance to Gein's deceased mother. Gein had also removed dozens more female bodies. He didn't kill them, but he had removed their bodies from the local graveyard where his mother resided, his mother being this domineering, Bible-quoting woman that Gein claimed continued talking to him beyond her death to warn him away from other women, these sinful harlots, 
that were out there to lead her boy astray. Gein claimed no remembrance of any of his his brutal acts, and he was deemed criminally insane and subsequently sentenced to life in a mental hospital. Now, although local newspaper accounts did sanitize a lot of the grisliest details of what the police found on Gein's farm, author Robert Block, he was unnerved in reading this in the paper. Gein lived just 40 miles away from his Wisconsin residence, and Gein's murders went on for years, and nobody suspected. And that made Block think that maybe any one of his neighbors could secretly be a monster behind closed doors, which really unnerved him, and he used Gein for inspiration on his next book. His next novel, entitled Psycho, would revolve around this killer whose personality schism resulted in committing completely brutal, aberrant crimes, while the killer himself remained oblivious. Block viewed his killer, named Norman Bates, as a Rod Steiger type. He would be overweight, he would be bald, he would be middle-aged. Norman Bates, a hermit corrupted by a fearsome mother who stifled his sexuality his entire life, even beyond her death. In the novel, Norman converses with mother as if she is alive. The book doesn't reveal that until the end, that she only exists within Norman's fractured psyche. But also, she does have a physical presence. Her corpse has been preserved through Norman's taxidermy hobby. Norman's wayward motel manager occupation, which Block bestowed upon him, that provided isolation from the locals as well as fresh victims on the outskirts of this Midwestern town of Fairvale. Midwestern, at least in the book, in the, uh, in the movie, it would be uh, Central California. Now, we learn that Norman does the killings while he's blackout drunk, so he doesn't remember, and the mother that he's preserved in his mind is the one who actually takes over his psyche to commit the deeds. Now, shifting toward the movie and how it got made, in order to gain new movie ideas over the years, Alfred Hitchcock took to uh, working with his longtime production assistant, Peggy Robertson. They regularly read newspapers. Block's Psycho was reviewed very well in one of the newspaper columns they enjoyed reading for ideas. Anthony Boucher's Criminals at Large column that covered crime fiction novels for New York Times Book Review. Hitchcock owed Paramount a picture and asked if they'd consider Psycho. Paramount script reader William Pinker, he had already done a book synopsis of Psycho and had written down that it was impossible to adapt into a film because of its lurid repulsiveness. Nevertheless, Hitchcock did go out and buy Block's book shortly before a flight to London, and as he read it, he found it very tantalizing, these Freudian implications, a lot of seamy voyeurism, and a very shocking murder that takes place in a shower. So he determined, once he landed in London, that he was going to buy the rights. Now, Robert Block, without knowing that Hitchcock was the interested party, he sold it for a meager $9,500 to what was called Shamley Productions. He didn't know that was the name of Hitchcock's independent production company. Now, Paramount was very much against making Psycho into a movie. They wanted Hitchcock to do a lavish, marketable endeavor, just like his other films in recent years, for their last contracted film with him. And that contract gave Hitchcock a lot of leeway, choice of screenplay, of cast, of editing, and of marketing, any picture that was budgeted under $3 million. Paramount was not going to fund a movie that might never see the light of movie projectors because of its taboo subject matter. But Hitchcock was not dismayed. 
He was a regular examiner of movie industry trends, and he noticed that low-budget exploitation flicks like those made by American International or Hammer Pictures or William Castle and Roger Corman, they were financial successes because they were shot on a low budget and had a high amount of audience interest. Now, Hitchcock had just directed North by Northwest. That earned the most money of any film he had made up to that point, but it also cost much more than any film he had made in his career, too. Star Power was the reason why. Star Power made movie-making expensive, and it also forced him to compromise some of the artistry and that he felt weakened the picture in the end. Even worse, though, in Hitchcock's mind, the actors seemed to receive the most recognition for the film's commercial success. If these low-budget exploitation flicks could make millions of dollars off of a film that was $100,000, how much more money could such an exploitation flick make if it were done by somebody who knew how to do it well. Hitchcock jealously admired a film that came out in 1955 called Diabolique, and that was by a French director named Henri-Georges Clouseau. Now, Hitchcock had wanted to buy the rights to the French book that Diabolique was based on, but Clouseau had beat him to the punch, and then subsequently stole a lot of his thunder in the industry because a lot of critics had started claiming that Clouseau really out-Hitchcocked Hitchcock. Diabolique, it did have a lot of similar themes to Psycho as he read it, Murder in the Tub as well. Psycho was Hitchcock's chance, he felt, to prove something to these critics and himself that he had not lost a step. Now, Paramount still would not give Hitchcock exactly what he wanted in terms of budget, but they did reluctantly agree that they would distribute the picture if Hitchcock would finance the difference Hitchcock did agree he deferred his usual $250,000 salary in exchange for a 60% stake in the negatives of Psycho. He determined he was going to shoot the film in black and white, just like those exploitation flicks, as well as Diabolique. That would lower the budget even more, and it afforded the additional luxury of perhaps staving off censorship of the bloody moments, which seemed to be more acceptable if the film were done in black and white rather than splashing a red across the screen. Close associates did feel that Hitchcock might be going a bit too far in its pursuit here. In fact, his Shamley producer, Joan Harrison, she refused to lower her salary in exchange for profit points, thinking this film was probably not going to make that much money, while Hitchcock's associate producer for several years, Herbert Coleman, he just quit altogether. Now, Paramount still was playing hardball with Hitchcock, continuing to try to discourage him from actually going forward and making this movie. They told Hitchcock there were no sound stages at Paramount available on the lot. And even if one did somehow open up, the budget that he had for his film was not going to afford one once it became available. So Hitchcock instead decided to turn to the location where he filmed his Alfred Hitchcock Presents television show, Universal International's Review Studios, and he was going to make Psycho under the same circumstances of that TV show, and for a song he could employ that Alfred Hitchcock Presents TV crew, and he would use his reputation in Hollywood to secure additional top-line talents to come on board at lower costs, and that included editor George Tomasini, composer Bernard Herman, and conceptual artist Saul Bass. Hitchcock already knew how to save time and money because he regularly did meticulous pre-production planning, The reason why he emphasized pre-production planning was because if he knew exactly how he was going to shoot a scene, he was not going to do a lot of additional takes or experimentation, and that meant less chance that some studio head or somebody else could come aboard 
in post-production and changed the nature of his films with the additional footage he had shot. Every shot was going to be storyboarded. Miniatures with breakaway walls were going to be made of the motel as well as the so-called psycho house made with doll figures that allowed Hitchcock to plan every shot and every camera movement. Now, Hitchcock wanted Robert Block to actually adapt his own novel for the film's first script, but MCA, their agents, they pushed for their client instead, James P. Cavanaugh. Cavanaugh was a scriptwriter for several episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, including one that Hitchcock actually directed called One More Mile to Go. That episode, actually, if you watch it, had similar story elements to what you see, at least in the first half of Psycho. Cavanaugh followed Hitchcock's eight pages of notes, but the director did find Cavanaugh's draft, once it was all said and done, a very dull, extended episode, like one of his TV shows, and Cavanaugh would be released for a new writer. Now, MCA agents next push for writer Joseph Stefano. Stefano was a newcomer who had a reputation for excelling in characterizations. Now, Hitchcock was reticent to work with an unknown, and Stefano's prior work that he did sample seemed a bit heavy-handed, a bit humorless. He reluctantly agreed to meet Stefano only because MCA's Lou Wasserman persisted that he should. Stefano also had reservations once he read Block's book. He thought it was pulp trash unworthy of becoming a Hitchcock film. Norman Bates, he seemed like a very unlikable character to spend time with. The victims were not at all relatable. He just didn't have any kind of feeling for this film other than it was a little bit sick. So Stefano told Hitchcock that if he was going to make it, he wanted to build up Mary Crane's character. Mary Crane would be the first and main victim in the Psycho film. He wanted to build her up so that we would follow her through the seduction to crime, to solve issues in her struggling relationship. We would come to sympathize with what she was going through and even be on her side. We would be invested enough to feel the tragedy of her senseless death right when it seemed like she was about to turn her life around. And following Mary would also solve one key problem of adapting the book, because this would keep the nature of Norman and Mrs. Bates secret by keeping them entirely out of the picture until it was necessary in the second half of the film. Hitchcock did really like Stefano's suggestions here, but he, above all else, he liked that Stefano seemed to actually have a surprisingly dark sense of humor, and above that, a willingness to dive headfirst into salaciousness that really piqued Hitchcock's interest, and that was enough to hire Stefano on a week-to-week -week basis. Hitchcock asked Stefano if he thought Norman might be more appealing if he were played by an actor like Anthony Perkins. He had already signed Anthony Perkins at that time. He was a, a younger star that Hitchcock did enjoy in Fear Strikes Out from 1957. But Perkins, the reason why he hired him, he was affordable because he owed Paramount one more picture. Now, Stefano instantly approved. He thought that was kind of a masterstroke because Perkins projected that kind of vulnerability, that kind of innocence that could make Bates' separation from his degenerative mental state believable. Stefano, he was actually unaware of Kavanaugh's first script. He wrote from scratch using Hitchcock's same notes and Bloch's book. He never referred to it again after he did his first draft. And Stefano would build his story around the perspectives of four separate characters who come to the Bates Motel. Of course, Mary Crane, next followed by private detective Milton Arbogast, and then Mary's sister, Lila, and then Mary's lover, Sam. Meanwhile, Hitchcock hired a local detective as a technical advisor to help Stefano 
with geographical accuracy to make it more plausible. Names and locations along Route 99 in California were provided in meticulous detail. Stefano also had to visit real estate offices as well as observe a real-life car dealer to try to establish authentic portrayals for the characters in those scenes. The legal department did find a Mary Crane existed in the Phoenix phone book, so the character's name officially changed to Marion at that point. Now, Robert Block was not pleased to find out that they had changed the name from Mary to Marion because Marion happened to be Robert Block's wife's name at the time. Now, in the finished script by Stefano, Marion is a real estate office clerk, and she's in a struggling relationship with Sam Loomis, a hardware store manager in Phoenix, Arizona, whose financial issues have kept them apart. Now, when Marion is tasked to deposit $40,000 in cash into the bank as part of her job, she impulsively steals it, feeling like this would be the answer to the solution in her relationship. She flees instead to Fairville, California, which is Sam's hometown, where he spends a lot of his time. And en route, a powerful storm forces Marion off the road. She books a stay at this isolated motel called the Bates Motel, and it's run by the shy but very friendly Norman Bates. But Norman's mother, who resides in this Victorian mansion that overlooks the establishment, she's not going to let Norman get lost to just any visiting trollop who comes along. That's the basic setup. If you haven't seen the film, and I can't imagine that many have at least not heard of what happens in Psycho, I do encourage you. In fact, I implore you to watch Psycho. It's one of the best films I've ever seen. So Stefano, he because he already knew Anthony Perkins was going to be in the film, he wrote Norman with him in mind. Now, Perkins wanted to work with Hitchcock, but once he did hear about what he was going to be playing in this film, he did have a little bit of early concerns that the role of Norman Bates might typecast him in the future. But Hitchcock did encourage Perkins to take the chance because it still was unknown that the film would be successful if it was going to get released at all. Now, one thing to say about Hitchcock, even though he was very commanding, on the set, he did view dialogue as well as character touches as the domain of writers and actors. So as long as they respected where he was going to place his camera, as long as they hit their cues when they should, they could change things around because he felt that they had a professional obligation to their characters to make them come to life. So Perkins did feel comfortable as the shoot progressed with working with Alfred Hitchcock. He changed some of Norman's dialogue as it went along. He also included some personality tics, including munching on candy corn and things like that. Perkins also changed Hitchcock's mind on a specific scene, how to shoot a sequence where he and Martin Balsam, who, who plays the detective Arbogast, they were rehearsing the scene where Arbogast is interrogating Norman at Bates Motel, and they thought their conversation seemed to work better if Arbogast started talking over Norman, not letting him finish a sentence before asking another question. But because Hitchcock had already storyboarded the entire scene with a series of close-ups, they knew that talking over each other wasn't going to work for this rapid-fire exchange, but Perkins still suggested that it might work better, so Hitchcock asked Perkins and Balsam to show him what they wanted to do, and he liked it so much that he ended up tossing out his storyboards in a wastebasket and filming it in a way that would work better for what they wanted to achieve. Now, Hitchcock's notes included sequences not found in Block's book. Those include Marion encountering a highway patrol officer, purchasing a car, Hitchcock's big hook was that he wanted a big star to play Marion, somebody that audiences would go into the theater never suspecting would come to harm. Hitchcock considered initially North by Northwest's Ava Marie Saint, but MCA pushed for their own actors, 
especially Lana Turner, as well as Hope Lang and Piper Laurie, Martha Heyer, and Shirley Jones. Now, of those, Turner had the star power that Hitch wanted, but she did lack that vulnerable quality that he wanted. And she would not be very believable as some sort of plain Jane who came from Phoenix, whose life was depressingly ordinary, except for this sputtering romance. Things did click, though, when Janet Lee was eventually proposed. Now, the script was not ready yet, so Lee had to read the novel in order to find out what Psycho was about after she was offered. Now, she found the novel ugly and frightening, but she trusted that Alfred Hitchcock could make something great from it, and she signed on. Now, Lee did have to take a lower price. If this was going to be a smaller role. It was only going to require three weeks of work, and one of those weeks, by the way, was the shower sequence alone that, <laughs> that doesn't even last a minute, but it ended up working out pretty well for her in the end because she did score a two-picture contract with Paramount after this for $750,000, because the film proved so successful. Now, Hitchcock's only advice given to Lee for her performance, other than she had to really hit her marks where the camera moved. She moved where the camera was. She also had to talk as if a man's hands were trapped around her throat, and that would give the feeling of the entrapment that Marion continues to feel more and more as the story progresses, at least until the moment when she takes a shower where she feels liberated, at least for a brief moment. Now, for Sam Loomis... Marion's lover, Hitchcock considered actors like Jack Lord, Rod Taylor, Robert Loggia, Cliff Robertson, Brian Keith, Leslie Nielsen, Richard Basehart, and Stuart Whitman. Now, Whitman had the inside track at the time until Universal really pressed for the hiring of John Gavin. Hitchcock acquiesced because Gavin had such a low salary and the Loomis role really, if once he thought about it, it required little more than sex appeal. So he thought, you know, these other actors might actually get in the way of that sexiness by giving nuanced performances. Now, Hitchcock did later regret hiring Gavin because he felt Gavin was really void of charisma. So knowing that Gavin was very limited in terms of his acting range, he asked Janet Lee she should work harder, make their trysts spark with more passion. She really had to do more than what was normally required to bring that spark. Now, Hitchcock claims that Lee was so convincing in her passion that Gavin had an erection throughout their scene in bed. Now, some have remarked that Gavin's disconnected performance was actually serendipitous to the quality of the movie and to Marion's motivation because it does make Marion appear as if she's madly in love with somebody who does not feel as intensely, and that further provokes our sympathy for Marion in the end. Now, Hitchcock contemplated for Lila Crane, Marion's sister, Caroline Kearney, before deciding to exercise his final contract option with Vera Miles, somebody he had been grooming to be a big star, but through a series of what Hitchcock felt was selfishness, which meant she started a family and got pregnant instead of appearing in films like Vertigo and other things that he was grooming her for. He decided to give up on her and put her in a small part in Psycho. Now, Miles came in. She wore... She wears a wig throughout Psycho. That's not her actual hair that you see in the film. In fact, if you look at her hairline, you can kind of tell. But, And the reason why she wore a wig was because Miles' hair was clipped all the way to her scalp for a role in her prior movie called Five Branded Women. Hitchcock joked that without her wig, Miles looked like the sexiest 14-year-old boy in town. Now, a lot of people don't know exactly how to qualify Psycho, is it a horror movie? Is it a mystery? Is it a thriller? Is it a black comedy? Now, Hitchcock states, well, you know, actually, an unseen homicidal mother is scarier, if you want to call it a horror movie, than some movie with featuring an ancient mummy. 
that you do see because the audience can believe what happens to the characters could happen to them. It's grounded in some sort of reality anyway. Names did float to the press that there were going to be some, at least an actress considered for the mother. Judith Anderson and Helen Hayes were the most prominent names thrown out there. There was also a canvas chair that was on the set that just read Mrs. Bates, which was kind of a hoax that Hitchcock used to throw the uh, the press off. To throw audiences, though, Perkins did not voice mother at any point in the film. Perkins suggested that this male friend, because he thought that the mother, if it was coming from Norman, should still be male. He knew this guy named Paul Jasmine, a friend of his, a young comic who concocted this shrewish old woman persona named Eunice Ayers, and he used that voice to make prank phone calls. Hitchcock hired Jasmine after hearing one of his prank recordings. Sounded very much like an elderly woman, even though, you know, technically Mrs. Bates was not that old when she was killed by Norman, essentially. Virginia Gregg and John McIntyre's wife, Jeanette Nolan, John McIntyre playing Sheriff Chambers in the film, Greg and Nolan also recorded dialogue for Mother, which Hitchcock and his sound editor blended with Jasmine's to try to keep audiences unsettled because the voice was always changing, even though it was consistent within that elderly lady persona. Now, Stefano did change the book somewhat because in order to explain Norman's nature, it was in the book, it was done mostly by Sam Loomis as well as Lila Crane, but Stefano decided he should add a psychiatrist character to try to explain Norman's nature. Now, Hitchcock initially did not like this angle because he thought that this lengthy explanation by this psychiatrist was going to be what's called a hat grabber. People would probably just start leaving the film at that point. But he did eventually approve because Stefano suggested that the inclusion of a psychiatrist would allay some of the objections by censors because it brought a plausibility that reduced any claims by the censors that this was just some sort of sick, prurient fantasy. Stefano's burgeoning relationship between Sam and Lila that he brought into this film, it did exist a little bit in the book as well. It was excised in the end by Hitchcock, who thought that audiences did not really care about these characters enough to follow their romance while the mystery was unraveled. They just wanted them to be the conduit to find out more about what's going on with Norman. Now, a scene was shot from a very high angle of Norman conversing with Mother in the fruit cellar. That was cut from the final product as well because Hitchcock felt that it diminished the subsequent scene, the final reveal, that Norman is indeed dressing as Mother and Mother is mummified. The shower sequence, the infamous shower sequence of Psycho, which I'm sure everybody knows, even if you haven't seen this film, that begins with Norman removing this hanging painting to gaze at Marion, who resides in cabin one. Now, fittingly, the painting that Norman removes, the subject of that painting is Susanna and the Elders, and that comes from the biblical book of Daniel, where men are secretly watching this woman bathing before they try to coerce her into sex. They threaten Susanna with false accusations of adultery if she does not submit. But having Lee shoot the scene in a bathing suit, that proved to be difficult. So Hitchcock coaxed Lee. She, he wanted her to just to perform in the nude. She wasn't going to be nude in the film, or except maybe if in European releases. But she refused flat out. She did not want to even act in the nude, even if it was not going to end up in the final film. They eventually struck a compromise. Lee agreed, instead of wearing a bikini, that she would wear flesh-colored moleskin to cover, just barely cover, her private areas. The steaming water, though, used in the shower scene often made the moleskin start peeling off. 
So her shower time was limited. So Hitchcock brought in this professional model named Marley Renfro. She was going to be Lee's body double. She had the same figure, the same build as Janet Lee. So she could be used not only to test the lighting, but to also to determine the shower curtain density as well as the steam, how much steam to use in order to obscure nudity. Now, now Lee insisted all the way up until her death that every shot that you see in the shower is of her, but subsequently it was revealed. In fact, Hitchcock actually talked about it in one of his interviews. The shots of Marion's hands and her shoulders and her head, those were all Lee, but the rest were the nude model. There were Renfro's. Now, the only one that Lee claimed that was not her was this shot of Norman wrapping Marion's corpse in the shower curtain and then carrying Marion's body out to her car. Those were Renfro, but Renfro insists that pretty much almost any shot of the torso or her belly button or anything like that, those were all her. Now, censors did come in and nix one specific shot that Hitchcock threw into the film of Renfro's bare bottom. This was an overhead shot. Marion was going to be laying dead over the tub's edge, and you would see her backside. They thought that was going a step too far. Now, although the filming experience was pleasant for Janet Lee, she, after witnessing the finished film, that's when she was triggered with fear and vulnerability because she then identified with what really happened to her because joking around with the crew and with Hitchcock was very pleasant for her. Only when she saw the final film did she realize just how harrowing it was for her character and she identified with the character. After that, she was so traumatized by watching this, she opted only to shower when no other bathing options would be available. Then when she did have to shower... She would lock all of the doors in the house or abode wherever she was in, and she would leave the bathroom door as well as the bathroom curtain completely open, and she would stand in the shower facing the bathroom door instead of the shower head, and that would result in water everywhere, but she was so traumatized by it, she couldn't do it. Shasta chocolate syrup, that was a chocolate sauce that was used in a newly designed squeeze bottle that was used in place of blood for a black and white film. It had the same consistency and look of blood on the screen. And Dorr and stuntwoman Margot Epper, they played mother for the shower scene. Perkins was never involved at any time in any of the murders in the film. Hitchcock kind of devilishly uh, used Lee off camera as well because Lee was the person who decided, at least incidentally, which hideous version of mother that they had created to appear at the end of the film, which one was the scariest because... Hitchcock would leave each example in Lee's makeup chair, and the winner was chosen by how loud Lee's screams were when she discovered them in her chair. Now, Saul Bass, he designed the opening titles to Psycho. Great opening titles, along with Bernard Herrmann's score. It's beautiful. He also storyboarded, famously, the shower sequence. He also storyboarded Arbor Gast's murder and the discovery of Mother. Hitchcock did discuss with Bass what he wanted to see occur, and then he started doing the storyboards based on what Hitchcock wanted. Now, a decade after the release of Psycho, Saul Bass, he really shocked the film world through this interview where he claimed that he was the director of the shower sequence, not Hitchcock. Hitchcock was having second thoughts about whether to do the shower sequence the way that, uh, the way that Bass intended. This is a revelation that has been discredited by pretty much everybody else who was involved with the making of Psycho. Now, Bass himself retreated from this position later on in life. He claimed instead, actually, he had shot and edited test footage that was done before the official shower sequence of the scene. He did it on a Spartan set with a handheld camera, kind of like a newsreel camera, using the body double, Marley Renfro, in place of Lee. And he did that to convince Hitch how the scene would work. 
Whether that's true or not, it's obvious if you look at the storyboards that Bass created, Hitchcock did not actually shoot everything that Bass storyboarded, and he also included some shots that were not storyboarded by Bass, and that would further strengthen this notion that Bass, while a collaborator and a very key part of the shower sequence in terms of how it plays out, he was not the actual director, if you want to use it. Now, the props department did make a rubber torso that had tubes in it with fluid in it that would gush blood when punctured, but Hitchcock determined that it just wouldn't look right. He never used it. He knew that sensors probably wouldn't allow it anyway. And contrary to Hitchcock always saying that the knife never touches Marion's body, there is a shot that actually shows contact. Marley Renfro ex would explain years later that the use that shot where it looks like a knife is going just below her belly button and entering the skin of Marion, that they started with a knife pressed against her abdomen and then raised up. And then for the film, they showed the shot in reverse. So it looked like the knife was going into, poking into her skin. Assistant director Hilton Green says that the only shots that you'll find in Psycho that were not actually directed by Alfred Hitchcock are his own Hitchcock caught the flu. There was an Asian flu going around during the making of the film, and Hitchcock succumbed to it. And he allowed Green to shoot the sequence referencing Saul Bass's storyboards, where Arbogast enters the psycho house and then goes up the stairs. Bass had storyboarded like a lot of close-ups of Arbogast's hands on the banister, as well as his feet as he climbed the steps. When Hitchcock saw what Hilton Green had shot, he decided this was not going to work. He reshot actually almost all of it because he felt that the way that Arbogast was framed, showing his hands and feet in very sinister fashion, he looked like a murderer instead of what he was going to be, which was a victim, and it tipped off audiences too early that something sinister was about to occur. So he decided to show it more straightforward with Martin Balsam going up the stairs for a shock when Mother comes out and stabs him and he falls down the steps. Now, the Universal set was completely closed throughout a lot of the making of the film. No interviews were given. Publicity for the film, which was in Hitchcock's domain, he decided he was going to tightly control it. He did not want even an official synopsis release for the film. Preview screenings were limited to only top studio brass. Now, Hitchcock even toyed with changing the title from Psycho to something else. He believed that audiences might carry expectations that would ruin the element of surprise by calling it Psycho. But Paramount insisted that it should be called Psycho because with all of the other aspects of the production being secret, the title was really the only draw that would bring in audiences that were the most apt to enjoy a film like Psycho. Hitchcock also removed the last few pages from the scripts of the actors. There was also a rumor that has floated around, I don't know if it's true or not, that he had one of his assistants buy up all the copies of Block's book that she could find. But Nevertheless, if you actually read the papers, I went back and re read a lot of the newspapers of the time. There were a few columnists, gossip columnists, celebrity columnists at the time that leaked out information about the early Lee death in the film, as, as well as Norman having taxidermy hobby, transvestitism, and schizophrenia. So it wasn't as tightly controlled as Hitchcock had wanted for those people who read those columns. Now, after assembling the first rough cut, Hitchcock had a production preview. He brought in some of the people involved in the production to watch this film. It didn't have music. It didn't have sound effects added later. And when they watched it, Hitchcock felt it was completely lackluster. Now, Hitchcock did assure those people in the room that it was going to improve. They were going to add the score. It was going to be more tightly edited than what they were seeing. 
but he was privately apprehensive, enough to tell Bernard Herrmann, who was coming in to score the film, that he actually was considering editing down Psycho, it was just so stillborn, down to air as perhaps a, an hour-long episode of his TV show. Now, Herman came in and he said he was going to help juice the film up. He decided that the score should feature only string instruments instead of the post-bebop jazz riffing Hitchcock first had in mind. And that was primarily because just having strings would mean just a very limited orchestra was much cheaper. But it did fit in with the nature of a stripped-down black-and-white movie as well. Herman even convinced Hitchcock to add music that was not intended to have music at all. The shower scene was meant to not have any music as well as the other murders. Hitchcock allowed Herman to come up with the music, the infamous psycho shower scene music with the screeching violins kind of simulating the, the stabbing action of, of Mother or of Norman Bates really. And he liked it so much he added that music toward the end of the film when Norman comes out for that final reveal. And Hitchcock liked it so much he uncharacteristically doubled Herman's salary as a reward for saving the picture. Now, after applying this music as well as those Saul Bass titles and then tightening up the pacing by eliminating a lot of the longer conversations, mostly at the expense of Lila and Sam, the more polished preview came out and it met with astonishing success by everybody who viewed it, except for Bernard Herman, who still thought it wasn't really up to snuff. But still, many of them were still apprehensive that such a graphic picture was going to meet with commercial success, even if it passed the censors. And those censors did object to a few things. They objected to a few lines of suggestive dialogue. Those had to be snipped out. Any direct incest insinuations about Norman and Mother being lovers were also trimmed out. A flushing toilet, that was a big no-no, according to the censors. And the word transvestite, they decided they should not use. Although those did end up in the final cut because... The censors were also contentious about the risque opening sequence between Marion and Sam in this hotel room, in addition to, of course, the shower scene. Now, Hitchcock said that he would redo the opening to make it a little less steamy if they would leave the shower scene intact and if they were on hand to approve the reshoots of that opening sequence. Now, the censors did agree, but when they never showed, Hitchcock got to keep both sequences as they were for the final release. Now, as far as marketing the film, Hitchcock was in charge of that. He hosts the theatrical trailer, a tour of the Bates Motel and the Bates House. That was written by James Allardyce, who wrote Hitchcock's introductions to his TV show. Now, nobody, of course, infamously was admitted into the theaters after Psycho started. That was a publicity stunt, to be sure, but not purely so, because Hitchcock was indeed worried that late-arriving audiences were going to be confused if they did not see Janet Lee, and it would cause a lot of uproar in the theater that they were watching something altogether different. Theater owners who were given a package that included such things as lobby clocks and cardboard standees of Hitchcock, explaining the reasons why they were not allowed into the theater until it started, as well as a manual to the theater owners to detail how to best handle the situation, including hiring Pinkerton guards, etc. Initially, the theater owners were not happy because the first week or so they had half-empty showings, but eventually, once the public did catch on to this, they became intrigued and the theater started filling up and they started arriving extra early as they should for their desired showtime. And it became an event film. The audience interest was piqued to find out just what all of the hubbub of Psycho was about. Now, Hitchcock did use his celebrity status. None of the actors were really out there promoting the film. He promoted the film himself internationally as well. 
And despite all of the factors against Psycho, it became a huge box office success and took in about $10 million in the United States alone off of a budget of under $900,000. It also took another $6 million overseas in its initial run. The average ticket price was only 70 cents at the time, mind you. Only Ben-Hur made more money that year, and that was from a budget that was 16 times higher than the one for Psycho. Hitchcock, a couple of years later, would exchange his Psycho and TV series rights to MCA Universal in 1962 for like 150,000 stock shares. That made him an instant multi-millionaire off of that exchange. Now, as far as Psycho goes, I mean, what more can you say? It's all been said by critics. Obviously, one of the greatest films in the history of cinema. At least that's what it's considered today. At the time, it was met with some mixed reviews. But today, it does represent Alfred Hitchcock's final masterpiece. It's one of the most influential films in cinematic history, certainly among the slasher genre of films. It changed the horror genre from supernatural yarns, creature features, to battles with evil that potentially lie within us all. Psycho really has filtered into the mainstream subconscious of our popular culture. I mean, you can't overstate just how significant Psycho was for its era. Psycho, obviously, as I said, it represented a huge gamble on the part of Alfred Hitchcock. He used a lot of his own money to to make this very low-budget black-and-white film. It wasn't certain that just would not see the light of the silver screen. You know, this is was absolutely unique at the time of its release. You know, an unmarried people engaging in a sexual affair, garbed in frilly undergarments, peekaboo voyeurism, schizophrenia, transvestitism, suggestions of nudity, horrific scenes of violence, mostly unseen, but a psychopathic main character to follow and kind of sympathize with in kind of a weird way. Psycho broke a lot of Hollywood taboos in terms of what can be shown or what can be said in a mainstream Hollywood release. It would change cinema henceforth, for better or worse, depending on your point of view, I guess, of the kinds of movies that came out afterward. Now, Psycho, I do think, is more than influential. It's more than important, more than groundbreaking. It It is actually extremely entertaining, you know, despite multitudinous more extreme copycats that have come out over the years. I do think that Psycho remains brilliantly constructed. It's prodigiously edited. It has very stellar, fluid direction, very fine performances, very witty, dark comedy undercurrent to it, and very nuanced characterizations that make it stand out above and beyond all of those imitators, even to this day. The Bernard Herman score, with its use of mostly strings, is legendary. The shower scene, of course, symbolizing Marion coming clean, although we feel the tragedy shortly thereafter as it all comes down around her. The frenetic Saul Bass opening titles and, and of course, his work on that shower scene. It, despite it all, as I mentioned, it opened to mixed reviews. It's critics, especially in Great Britain, derided it as gimmicky, as slow to build. Hitchcock felt critics were just were just miffed that they weren't allowed to, to get preview screenings before the audiences would get to see it. Critics did eventually come around, not that long afterward, as they tend to do when things become financially successful. It earned four Oscar nominations, Hitchcock for Best Director, Janet Lee for Best Supporting Actress, Best Cinematography in Black and White, and Best Art and Set Direction in Black and White. 
Like all masterpieces, Psycho is not without faults. That expository psychiatrist, a psychologist who comes out and explains all Norman's maladies and motivations, that has been derided by many people over the years as the worst scene in Psycho, probably the most unnecessary to people today because we're so used to crazy people who go mad in films today. We don't need that explanation these days, but Simon Oakland's performance is hammy and emotive on top of it, which makes it all the more stand out. Luckily, it does bounce back with a brilliant final shot of Norman that ends the movie with just as much menace and fright and humor that he had been masterfully doling out all along. I do think that Psycho is courageous filmmaking of the highest order. The shock value may have diminished over the years, but I do think that Psycho still entertains through this fascinating premise, these interesting characters, and of course, the showmanship of a director with a deafness for understanding the psyche of the audience. In the world of Psycho, everybody has something to hide. Mirrors frame every major character, exposing the potential for a split personality, a second side to everyone, not shown to the public, just as we all might have that side to us. Except for Norman, who avoids mirrors, no longer able to see or want to see what he's become. Hitch here, with Psycho, puts up a mirror, metaphorically at least, to us all. He implicates us in carrying the guilt of the most heinous of the film's events, from the crime of theft of the, the sexual affair, as well as the murders later, that reveals something unnervingly primal about our overwhelming internal attraction counter to our moral repulsion to these twisted tales of CB sex and shockingly graphic violence. I'm giving Psycho four stars, easily four stars. Out of four, four stars, it means this is a film that I would recommend to anybody, at least of a certain age, at least at least ones who are ready to watch a film as intense and violent as this. I probably wouldn't show it to my 10-year-old daughter, but, you know, certainly I would say that it would be okay for her when she's a little bit less impressionable. So four stars out of four is what I give Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. This film definitely was not intending to have a sequel to it, but a sequel did eventually emerge because Psycho has remained in the public consciousness for so many years. And eventually, in 1983, Psycho 2 was released. Not done by Hitchcock, but Anthony Perkins does reemerge as Norman Bates for a return to the Psycho House and Bates Motel. And I'll talk about all of that on the next episode of Around the World in 80s Movies, getting into the 1980s this time. If you haven't seen it in a while, if you haven't seen it at all, I do encourage you to watch Psycho 2. It's definitely not as great as the original, but it does have some redeeming qualities to it. If you have your own thoughts on Psycho that you want to impart, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are all there as well. If you really want to get in touch with me and have me respond, though, the easiest way is to write me an email, and you can find that email address also at my website. But until you hear my voice again, I thank you so much for listening and joining me as I travel around the world in 80s movies with an occasional detour. (laughs) 